0: So during the course of this retreat, Sally and I have been doing our best to present to you how the experience of equanimity can be practiced, can be understood, and can be cultivated and realized. And so we've given various um, slants and aspects of it that help you to understand the way it is balancing that it's not this precarious balance like you're on a razor's edge and if you fall this way, you know, you're, you're not being equanimous or you just tip that way a little bit, you're not, it's being equanimous. It's more like a very wide stance of stabilization. It's um, often described as a mountain, you know, just a wide-based uh, mountain that's very, very stable. And no matter what happens, whatever weather patterns happen uh, on the mountain, to the mountain that affect the mountain, the mountain just can stay seated, still, and be very stable. Stable that way. So also, it's likened to vast space, which Sally so beautifully presented this morning. Uh, this kind of big sky understanding how things can come into the sky do its changing thing and dissolve just like clouds in the sky and uh, it's it's the way it is with thoughts with formations uh, bodily formations, mental formations as well that this sky and this vast space doesn't have to have any boundaries It's, it's not like this is good and bad and we separate it into this is um, uh, pleasant or unpleasant, and one is more favorable than another. And it's more like it's all part of how life is. Nothing is a part, no part left out. There's an ability to really accept it all, like the, the eight winds of change that we've been talking about during this year, this time together, the, these vicissitudes of life. So there's a balance, there's a spaciousness, and there's that deep calmness and quietness of the mind and heart where uh, it's not thrown about by whatever comes into it, into this vast sky. It's not, there's no hanging on to it, there's no stickiness, nor is there something pushing it away. I In, in some of the Tibetan texts it talks about, it's like... Um, You throw paint up into the into this vast space, and it doesn't stick. It just does its thing. You know, it's according to its nature and gravity. It it just goes up, and it does a little dance up there, and it just falls. So the same thing with anything that comes into the mind, we begin to see that experientially. It's not uh, book knowledge. It's not because somebody told us so, but because we realize it ourselves. So there's this deep calmness and quietness of the mind. And it's what we call resting the mind before it falls into extremes, that equanimity that can see it going. When I explain that the near and far enemy, uh, there's an ability for awareness to see it going towards, for example, the extreme of attachment or aversion. And it, it really sees it's going in that direction And before it can actually, that whatever is there can grab hold of it through delusion and ignorance, Uh, there's mindfulness which is, you know, lighting up the mind. It sees what's happening and it can come back to the middle path. It can come back to the middle ground. And this is resting the mind before it falls into extremes in this middle ground of equanimity. And of course the other side is apathy or indifference. It can see it going there as well. So before it goes into that extreme, which is mostly ignorance and delusion, it it sees it more and more quickly, more and more in a refined way, so it doesn't have to really um, get lost there. It can come back again to the middle ground. And then also, of course, very important, and as because we started out with metta, we realized that um, metta is the base of all of this, the kindness, it's a kind heart that's able to be equanimous. It's not a dry and distant and callous heart that's that way. It's a very kind, does it out of kindness towards oneself. It does it out of kindness towards others. So there's balance, there's spaciousness, there's deep calmness, quietness of the mind, the propensity to find the resting place in the middle. And there's also the the very deep kindness. The heart is in it. It's really the heart and the mind together, an integration of both. And the, the fifth thing that we've imparted during this time here together is the understanding of karma which is the main phrase that's used in equanimity. All beings are owners of their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their intentions, their actions, not upon my wishes. Although, of course, what we do has an effect. Has, um, it, it can help a person, and we must do that. We must do everything we can to help, to benefit, But we know in the end that their karma is much more powerful than anything, you know. I I said in a group, but I didn't say to all of you that um, I'm a mother of four grown children and and, um, I have some grandchildren too. And I see with all of them that no matter how loud I yell... And how, <laughs> how much I make my point that, you know, you're going down this river and you're going to come to a waterfall and, you know, that might kill you or it might cause great injury to you. But, you know, they have their own karma. And, and that's why that saying, all of my kids have their own journey. Um, that was how that came to me, that phrase, all beings have their own journey because they could be going down that river and saying, Okay, Mom, we hear you, but we're still going. Is that, that's what we want to do, you know. And it's like, you know, I can't control that. Because that river of karma is so much more powerful than no matter what I do to say to to help, to, to give them a warning or to say, you know, I care about you, I'm doing everything I can, and I'm yelling to you with the, my loudest voice, don't go in that direction. But they still do because that's their journey, and nothing I could stay, even as their good mother, uh, is going to stop them. So, um, so it doesn't mean that we don't say anything, that we don't do anything. And I want to make that point because it seems like in the West we have this kind, this understanding in our, in our socialization it's um it's very different and equanimity has a very different sense in in Asian countries. Um, that's my experience anyway, but so I really have to explain all the time. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Yes, we do what we have to do. we do everything we can to benefit to help. but uh, you know their karma is much more powerful, whoever we're helping out there. and so maybe our Karma it can be more powerful sometimes, um, but even with my own children I've seen that, you know, it, it's hard. You know, we see them do things, we see close family members do things that we don't, we see that it's hurtful to them, and, oh, you know, all we can do is accept that it's all part of this big cause-and-effect relationship. So, <clears throat> I wanted to present to you tonight equanimity of insight and mostly the insight about the trajectory of our path and how it brings us to deepening ways of understanding life. And to give you a sense of of the path of practice that we're on, what I wanted to present were um, these seven factors of enlightenment or these seven bojangas and it's really, Bojangha the word for the seven factors of enlightenment. So it's um, kind of in a very, very general, general way. It's a way of uh, helping all of us to understand what happens on the path of practice. What are the activating forces? What are the tranquilizing forces? And the end tranquilizing force is equanimity. So how do we get there? So I wanted to use the This um, kind of map of how it happens in that way it's a very general map. there's much more precise maps of um, very refined experiences that we have along the path but this is um this is just one way to look at it so Um, I hope this will help you recognize these factors of awakening in your own practice because you'll recognize them. All of you have had them and some of you have asked questions about what is this in my practice, you know, I'm experiencing this. And if you listen carefully you'll see that um, how this is uh, exposed uh, to you by the Buddha that um, you will see part of your practice in this too. So one of the most important pieces of advice given by the Buddha at the end of his life was this you are the light, you are the refuge there is no place to take refuge but yourself and that's always given me a sense of it's, it's felt like I was being empowered rather than disempowered You know, still the teachers are there um, our spiritual friends are there to help us to show the way, um, and uh, to be by our side when they can be. And yet we still have to, in the end, take refuge only in ourselves. And uh, through our practice here, you know, on the cushion, in the world, on our deathbed, we don't have anybody else but ourselves to go to. So that's, that's very empowering and those words are often a reminder to me that the seeds of liberation and awakening are within this very mind and heart and they're not in somebody else's they're they're here in in what i call you know kamala what you call kamala so um and we have to be our authentic selves you know in this relative world there is a self and um it's called in this case it's called kamala and you just have to let things unfold the way they unfold for each one of you it has to be that way it's the law for you for your particular unfolding everyone is so different so i don't want you to put this in such um, you know boxes that are like steel cased each one that you you can't be a little bit different than what's being presented because we each have our own unique way of unfolding. So um, I am just remember every time I um, give a talk I kind of remember a few stories. And so this one is about my eldest daughter, um, Rona. She loves it when I tell this story. And um, she was a a little girl and we had just um, immigrated Back to America from the Philippines, and um, I was—we were all alone. I just had the three children, and there, and it was—I uh, was a single mother for them for quite a while. And um, I was asking each one of the children, "Well, what do you want to be when you grow up?" You know, and and the youngest one, Tracy, said she wanted to be a noise uh, A nurse, a nurse, you know. <laughs> And um, she explained a little bit. And then um, the, the other one, my son, actually, I forgot what he said, but um, <laughs> you know, he said something really sweet. And then I asked my eldest one, Rona, and she said, I want to be me. Mm. And I said, and she's always been, you know, like she just wants to be herself. And I, I really love her for that. And I said, well, well, why, you know? (laughs) I was kind of stupid at that point. And she said, well, if I'm not me, who else will be? And it was, like, so true, right? And so there's nobody else that, really, there's nobody else that's going to be my daughter, Rona. She's so um, wonderfully herself. So, A few years ago, I was taking my usual annual time for personal retreat in Burma. And I went to my teacher, uh, Sayadaw Upandita, to pay formal respects to him. And in a very formal way, he said to me, "Uh, Why are you here? And he knew I was going to ordain as a nun at that time. In, In Burma, you can ordain temporarily. So he said, You have come so far away. To practice in this very hot country, and sometimes the food isn't agreeable to you, you know, because it's very different there. Although his center has, is known to have some of the best food, <laughs> the cleanest food in, in, um, of the retreat centers. And I responded to him I want to continue to purify my heart and mind. And there had been a renewed sense for me of urgency and ardency and willingness to um, go to whatever next depth I could go to in my practice and to face whatever I had to go face and to let go of whatever needed to be let go of and experience the deeper layers of, of suffering and delusion. And I was really willing to do that. So his advice to me was, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. You must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And that was a really interesting way to put it, because most of the time we hear, you must be able to let go of everything, right? It's kind of the opposite. But he was saying, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And In the Dhamma, your investment is what you have internally. You know, these are the precious um, qualities that we, Sally and I, have been talking about. The paramis, you know, generosity and truthfulness and patience and perseverance. Equanimity is one of them. Uh, Living with morality, that integrity that doesn't want to harm any other being, and so forth and so on. So this is an investment, you know, to really take what you've learned and put it into your practice. And also any one of the four brahmaviharas, metta is also a parami, but it's also a brahmavihara, compassion, brahmavihara, sympathetic joy, equanimity brahmavihara but also a parami. So we take that and put it into our practice, investing that in our practice which you have done as you've been here. So how I interpreted that for myself was I needed to bring forth those qualities already and naturally in the mind stream that would be the strengths necessary to purify the mind and heart more deeply of greed, hatred, and delusion. And to do that in a balanced way, not in a willy-nilly way, but to really check oneself. Is there too much energy or too less? Is there too much... Concentration that can cause dullness of mind or, um, you know, is there restlessness in the mind? Just to see what the energy factors are, how balanced it is. So these qualities um, that I'm going to present to you are the seven factors of enlightenment or sometimes we call them the seven factors of awakening because these are the factors that awaken us to the truth of life. And it's that awakening to those factors of wisdom that really liberate the mind. So they're gradually developed because of the support of in this retreat, the support of silence and the relative seclusion and the continuity of our practice. This continuity um, really develops that balanced effort that we need. So I call it gentle, persevering effort. It's not like a big, striving push. It's more like gentle but clear, moment to moment to moment. Sometimes not clear, but that's okay. Then we take the next moment. Don't get too wigged out about things like that. So our commitment to explore what's really going on inside more deeply Can be known with this kind of seclusion. Can be known with this kind of support that we have, that we're constantly giving you support and saying, what could be done next, how to look at your practice, how to understand it, and um, then to do it. You know, to actually apply what we what we offer, which is kind of the hard part sometimes because you know we like to just listen and agree. Oh, that sounds good. But then to actually apply it takes a different kind of effort. So our commitment to explore what's really going on on the inside is um, by way of doing the practice in the way we did. We're constantly, as we have been telling you, um, even in the Vipassana practice in the morning and in the equanimity practice in the afternoon, to turn your attention and look what's going on in the mind. You know, not just stay focused on what's going on in what the trigger is, but to know what what gets activated in here. So it's constantly seeing what's turning you this way, turning you this way, all the time. So this has been a very important component of our retreat. And this, you know, we've been developing equanimity about what's going on out there, but mostly what's going on in here and seeing more deeply into the nature of this reality here. But this part about constantly giving you the practice of looking here. Looking here. You know, what's the attitude of the mind? What's going on? What are you looking with? What veils are you looking through? You know, all the different ways that we... Ask you to see what's going on inside. This uh, turning of your attention here has been a really important part of this retreat. So, um, I hope we both hope that you can continue to take that home with you. Because to realize the Dhamma, to experience and see things as they really are, to see the true nature of reality, really requires this inner looking, this inner investigation because we're not going to find it out there. It's, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, the truth can be seen of impermanence, the you know, unsatisfactory nature and all of that out there too. But the way we realize it deeply is to see those experiences within this body-mind continuum. So these seven factors give the heart and the mind the strength And when we see them in balance, it's a refined balance needed to pierce through ignorance and delusion. It takes a really steady mind, a piercing mind to do that, a mind that can really see with clarity. And not just, you know, sometimes we can just feel that we're being you know, aware, but it, it's actually quite a bit of delusion because, you know, we're just kind of not really seeing things very pristinely and clearly, but it feels so comfortable. And so we, we just stay there. So this is, um, this is kind of a wrong view, and, and it's too bad. But we, we really have to learn to be more clear and more precise moment to moment. So to awaken and bring forth the wisdom essential for liberation really needs all of these seven factors in balance. And then um, finally at the you know at the end it reaches that place of equanimity. Like Manindra said, the end of um, the end of vipassana is not happiness, it's equanimity. You know why I said that? because this seventh factor is equanimity, and it's called the doorway to nibbana, the doorway to peace. So he was referring to the seven factors here. Of course, it goes beyond equanimity, but in that case, he was referring to the seven factors. So <clears throat> this, um, these seven factors, and I'll repeat them again, some of them I'll go through fairly quickly because I've already gone through some of them, or Sally has in previous Dhamma talks. So the first one is mindfulness or awareness itself. And this is the linking and activating factors of all the others. So this is the first one, and then there are six others. Mindfulness is really something that uh, activates the others, and it continues to balance all the others as we uh, keep the continuity of awareness going in, in our practice. So the next three are energizing factors. And they are investigation, and I'll explain that more. It's not psychological or even scientific investigation. It's just really seeing things at deeper levels of experience. And um, the second of the energizing factors is effort or energy. And the third is a delight in practice. Sometimes it's called rapture or piti. Then there are three stabilizing, or sometimes they're called calming or tranquilizing factors. And the first one is calm itself, different from concentration, which is the second one of the state of the stabilizing factors. And the third one is equanimity. So there is the mindfulness, which balances them all, and it's linking them all. And then there's the three energizing and the three stabilizing. So I wanted to present to you the balance of that and how we need to look at that. So the knowledge of these qualities and being able to assess them in your own practice is really important. When I took a period of um, solo practice, um, teacher not around to talk to and to get advice from. So these are always being looked at. And sometimes it happens automatically. Just in a very quiet sitting there would be, oh, there's a a sense of energy there. And then they'll be checking out, oh, the mind is really deepening into more levels of understanding what's really happening. And then there's an, oh, this is calm. Oh, concentration is there now. And so every once in a while the mind starts to recognize what's really going on in the practice. And this happens quite automatically. It's part inherent in, a, in as we understand the, um, the path of practice, it comes quite naturally to take a look for oneself. So these factors um, in Pali are called bojangas, and um, that's the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were first uh, transmitted and recorded in. So this bojanga, this word is composed of two parts that give it meaning, and the first part is bodhi. Bodhi the, in bo, but the part of um, bodhi denotes enlightenment. And the second part, the Anga part, means factors or limbs. So f- these are factors of enlightenment. Factors for insight, for wisdom to arise, that release the mind and heart from suffering. So one of the Buddha's disciples asked him, How far is this name applicable? And the Buddha answered, These factors conduce to enlightenment. That's why they are so called. It's just really a fact. So it's important to be carefully aware of those causes and conditions that nourish and contribute to a fully awakened mind and heart. And um, one of those powerful conditions is when the mind is relaxed, when there's not a striving, when there's continuous yet clear awareness of the predominant experience. And so we start you out with grounding experiences, being with the body, the breath, as the Buddha started out. um, Started out with attention to rupa, to sensations like in the body that happen. And then feelings, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. The quality of mind that's happening. So turning your attention to the mind all the time. What's going on there? Anger, attachment, joy, compassion. Whatever the quality, of the mind is just recognizing that. And then the fourth one is um, Dhammas, with a capital D, and that usually means the natural laws of the way things are. And this is the the fourth one is in um, kind of like groupings of of Dhamma talks, like the Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, the Seven Factors, um, things like that, which we've been imparting to you bit by bit. So it's a more formal teachings you could say, but we realize them within that grouping. For example, maybe a hindrance would come up. Just an example. Uh, Maybe a hindrance of aversion would come up and then one would realize that hindrance as being part at least I would, as being part of, oh this is a hindrance. This is part of the five hindrances. It's a defilement that's arising in the mind. It doesn't go into a long self-dharma talk about it, but it, it understands it as so. So in our practice of mindful awareness, whatever is applied, whenever uh, mindfulness is applied, whether sitting, walking, standing, or lying down, all the four postures that the Buddha talked about, in all activities, the, this results is in a maturing of our practice and in a strengthening of all the factors, and a natural balancing of the energizing qualities and the stabilizing qualities, just by doing our practice of mindful awareness. So the Buddha gave um, a guarantee, like he said, if the four foundations of mindfulness, which Sally and I have been uh, guiding you in, in the mornings, are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the seven factors of enlightenment will automatically and fully be developed. So this was his reassuring promise to us that this would happen. So, the Buddha said from this um, passage in the numerical discourses, I declare, O monks, that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment should be the answer. So this is an extremely important Dhamma understanding um, The Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware and more knowledgeable of the path of practice for yourself and to be able to recognize these so that they're strengthened. Every time there's a recognition of them, they're actually strengthened and the pathway there or that particular area kind of lights up in the mind and so we can see it more easily when they're recognized over and over and over again. So we know where we need more energy or less effort. Um, We know when maybe uh, we need a little more calmness. And so we we stop distracting ourselves. You know, those kinds of adjustments happen in our practice. So... it said that mindfulness develops all the others it not only links them balances them to the right degree but it really develops all the others so this is a really important factor just keeping continuous mindfulness sometimes people don't even know you know they you don't have to be that pristinely clear sometimes you you just keep practicing and all of these come into Balance and to clear awareness, and then all of a sudden you really recognize, just feel a real sense of calmness now, or that the mind can connect and sustain with an object, and that concentration is just so strong in that moment. Or you see the mind not reactive to anything, and there's a there's this understanding all of a sudden. Wow, there's no reactivity, you know. So what? There's no aversion or Attachment there. And that's an extremely um, pure feeling in the heart mind. So I took some time the other evening to describe mindful awareness and I'd just go over a few things. Um, you heard this already, but like probably some of you have heard even this talk, many times already. So in the Dhamma, it's really helpful to hear the talks over and over again because you always pick up something new. At least I do. So awareness itself is not an easy quality to know because we're usually concerned with the object of what we're paying attention to and not really looking more closely to the awareness itself, which we, we can learn to do also. But awareness itself is, um, that function of awareness is not forgetting. I talked about that the other evening. It's about remembering, but not remembering the past or even, you know, um, not remembering to plan for the future. But it's remembering to be awake, remembering to be present, remembering to be aware. So this means, when that's happening, that the mind is not ignoring or being in ignorance. Because when, we're, when there's no awareness, if there's ignorance happening or delusion happening. Ignorance is a little slightly different from delusion. Ignorance is when there is an igno- a total ignoring of what's going on. It's like not even seeing it. It's like turning away, which we can often do when things are uncomfortable. But delusion is seeing it, but misinterpreting what is being seen. And mostly it's about seeing um, that something's permanent when it's really impermanent. Seeing that there is a self when really there is no self. Or seeing seeing something and understanding that this is always going to give forever satisfaction when in reality it won't give lasting satisfaction. So that's um, delusion. Seeing things but seeing wrongly, actually. Or misinterpreting it. So in my own practice I've seen that at least there are um, two levels of understanding of this sati. And the first and most obvious is not to let the mind wander off into a daydream too long, or well, when it does, you know, to be ready to bring it back to the present moment of actually recognizing that it's wandering. And not to rush back to the breath, but to recognize just what, what ended in that moment. You know, when the mind just wakes up and says, Oh, wandering. And so that is to see that, that wandering mind just start fading away in that moment. And then notice the next moment, which may be the breath or it may be another more predominant experience, not the breath. So when it goes into unnecessary proliferation, what we call papancha, about the present moment, it starts to remember more quickly to come back to the actual experience and not be lost in that fantasy. So more and more uh, the mind is more quick to pick it up when we make a practice of picking up and we're not so um, fascinated by our thoughts or hypnotized by our thoughts. So <clears throat> that's the first level of you know being able to really let those fantasies go by and come to know that it's happening and come back to the present moment of whatever is being known then. But the second level is not so obvious. It's to actually recognize that mindfulness is happening. And this is a part where, you know we're not so um, we're not so practiced in knowing awareness. We're more practiced in knowing the object of awareness. So when we come back over and over again, we and we recognize that, oh, awareness is happening, mindfulness is happening. And Sally and I were pointing to that. That wasn't the main point of our practice this time. It was more equanimity. So, and we needed we would need more time to go into that. So that's a second level of understanding awareness. To really remember, to notice awareness as well, that the mind is being aware. It, that's more subtle. So, um, in the commentaries, as I mentioned. Uh, Awareness is likened to a clean, clear mirror that doesn't distort anything, that doesn't deny anything, that doesn't add anything, that doesn't comment on anything. It just reflects just what's there in that moment. So um, this kind of dates me, but remember Dragnet? Does anybody remember where they said just that... Then the detective said, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know. So I I would say that to myself sometimes, just the bare facts, you know. I don't need to comment all around it or what happened when I was a little girl, but just, this is painful, this is dukkha, this is anger, this is attachment, whatever. So um, the characteristic of Mindfulness, which I didn't talk about the other day, is this being able to not just float on the surface, but it's like a rock that's put, uh, a pebble that's put on a pond, the surface of a pond. It really sinks down to deeper levels. And it notices whatever is happening at deeper levels, not just at the surface of things or at the thinking level, for example, but it really sees more deeply into that. So those are the basic qualities of mindfulness itself, the linking, the balancing, and the developing factor of all the others. And then there's investigation, which is the first of um, of the energizing factors. Now, this is not an investigation of the past or the future. It's more being with the present moment and really kind of coming close to the present moment. It's not investigating by philosophizing or psychologizing or like trying to understand it even in a Dhamma way. It's um, what's going on in terms of direct knowledge of what's going on. So, for example, um, directly experiencing the present moment as different aspects of how pain manifests in the body. You know, it's Tightness, tension, pressure, jabbing, stabbing, um, you know, coolness, heat to extreme levels sometimes. So it it really is that kind of direct experience. It sees what we call the unique characteristics of what we call pain. We're not just saying pain, pain. You know, we go kind of to a deeper level and see that, oh, this is just contraction, expansion, heat, warmth, coolness, um, stabbing, roughness, smoothness, all of those ways that can be, uh, those experiences can be described in a more um, natural manner, just like, um, you know, organically, like earth, wind, fire and water, earth, air, fire and water, the kind of um, natural ways that, that they are exposing themselves. So I remember one time going to Upandita and, and kind of investigating in a Dhamma way what's going on, you know. Oh, I said, I, there was something that was known to me that never had been known in that way before. And I was explaining it to him and um, it was a really deep Dhamma understanding for me that not only is you know are the four elements of earth, air, uh, fire and water known in bodily experience, but they're also known in the experience of the mind, and which is true. But um, And I was starting to explain to him, and he said, stop in English. If you continue in this way, you will go backwards. Yeah, because just having proliferation in a Dhamma way, short, and that something that comes up all of a sudden is fine and And you know it, you know the content of it, and but you don't need to add any more to it and so, when you add more to it, it's like um you know you're you're going into a lot of concepts now, which are kind of laying on the top of things instead of going underneath the surface and knowing moment to moment what's going on so That's not that kind of investigation we're talking about when you're reviewing or thinking too much. It can become... Then all of a sudden you feel heavy, you know, when it feels like you're kind of weighted down by thoughts, even when they're Dhamma thoughts. So one time I was saying that there was a lot of thinking, and he said, withdraw the energy from the thinking. And it was like just... You know, withdraw the energy from the thinking. I'm practically quoting him because I got this from my little notes. And stay with the process, the movement. And I translated that to be the energy of the thinking. And so that was translated from Burmese into English by a translator. But I really got to stay with that energy of of the thinking process itself and when I wasn't so wrapped up into the content of the thoughts, I could really see what was fueling the thoughts, or what was re- the mind's relationship to the thoughts, which could be anger, or frustration, or attachment, or, you know, usually a, a defilement for me. So, this kind of investigation in the Dhamma is Dhamma Vichaya. And it's really that kind of investigation on on deeper moment-to-moment levels. So we refrain from getting caught up in the stories we tell ourselves, which are usually, you know, those empty echoes which aren't so helpful anyway. So that was the energizing factor. And then the second one um, is uh, the energy um, investigation is the first one. The second energizing uh, factor is energy itself. And it's not the energy to change or to improve, to get rid of, or to gain anything. And the last one is really important because when we want to gain something, it's like we're striving for something. We We really want it to happen. And then because of the wanting, it kind of overshadows the kind of natural... Um, unfolding of the Dhamma and so we don't even know it but we're wanting and we can't even see that happening it's like you're wearing Upandita used to ask me once in a while when I'd come into um, the reporting period he'd say what color glasses are you wearing today Yogi Kamala am I seeing through the wanting lens or through the aversion lens or through the delusion lens and so um yeah, this this can happen in practice. You really have to be careful that there's no agenda, you know, in the beginning of your practice to to experience anything. Just being the the thing is just intention to be with whatever is presenting itself with the most clarity and continuity and balance possible. So that in itself, you know, we can strive for that, but just back up, back down, back off. Settle back and just let things unfold and bring that just that moment that's so light of mindfulness to the moment. One of my Dhamma friends, and um, she's a friend and she's a student, she said, um, There's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day <laughs> it's because we're, we're always looking for that. you know, how did I sit and it, I, I, my head was a little cocked this way, one my hand was this way, and the other one was that way. so we start sitting that way you know, and think that it's going to make all the conditions, but it actually, because you're looking for it, you won't find it so. Um, this virya is really important to have in balance; that there's not too much or too little. The third energizing quality is called piti, p-i-t-i, and sometimes it's translated as a kind of interest or zest in the practice. Um, it's um, uh, an uplifting feeling of it. One would have the thought, "Wow, this is like a sublime pleasure." I've never experienced this before. And the Buddha said, um, one can have the thought, the pleasure of the Dhamma excels all other pleasures. And I think some of you have experienced something like that. You know, wow, never experienced this before. This is something really kind of out of this world. So it's like, um, it's described in the commentaries, it's as if one were walking in a desert and parched with thirst, and then one sees an oasis of trees in the distance and uh, knows that water is sure to be there. And so it, it, it kind of has the zest and the energy to keep going forward, and also with a very pleasant experience. There's delight in the mind, there's lightness and agility in the mind and body. It can receive a lot of experience, uh, all experience with a lot of interest. Um, there's energy, you sense there's energy in the mind, um, the mind is very workable, there's a lot of faith, there's a lot of confidence. These are all the symptoms of this area. Uh, painful sensations that are rough turn to soft and smooth and gentle and it feels like little tapping sometimes. It's very, very, very gentle. You feel like floating or flying sometimes. Uh, it feels like you can just fly um, it feels like there's a rocking, swaying, very pleasantness in the body. So there's different kinds of PT, um, but it can be momentary, it can be overwhelming, it can feel rapturous and um, pervasive. So some people think that this is enlightenment, and this is, um, this is one of the places where one stops in practice and doesn't want to go forth because you want to hold on to this moment. But if you do that, you won't go forward into what's deeper. Um, You really have to let go. Conditions came together and made this happen. They may come together again. But if they don't, it doesn't mean that something's wrong with your practice. It means that you're going forth, you're going forward. Um, If you continue with the mindful awareness with that continuity. So then there's calm in in the mind-body. You feel delight in the practice and uh, you really have a subjective experience of inner quietness like a calm, placid lake that's happening. Remember I said that in PT, it feels like you're in the desert and from afar you see um, an oasis of trees and you think, oh, water's there. I'm going to get to the water. Well, what happens when we experience calm. It's as if we got to the water and you drink the water. And then that puts this feeling, a subjective experience of this feeling of a real relief. And it's deeper. It's deeper than you've you've shifted from the energizing to the tranquilizing experiences. And it really feels like there's a shift there at that moment. And then the, another deep stabilizing factor is concentration itself, where it feels like the energy momentarily on each changing moment is not distracted. It really is connects and sustains in that moment, and then something else arises, it connects and sustains in that moment. And the function of samadhi, it's called samadhi, which is this concentration, is to collect the mind and it gives a very secure feeling. And um, there's that understanding that the defilements, the mind is so collected because the, the energy is going towards each changing object and it makes this kind of field of protection around you. And so the, the defilements can't come in. So it feels so secure and protected at that time. It doesn't feel dissipated or dispersed or going in many directions, it feels very unified. So things are pretty clear at that moment. and um, So it's a very powerful time of practice. There's a lot of purity of mind during that time because no defilements can come in. And the stabilizing factor of equanimity begins to develop during that time even more powerfully this is called the doorway to peace because it's this is the the precursor to nibbana to the mind kind of leaping into the unconditioned it's an experience that is prevalent just before that moment and so sometimes for people this takes a long time to develop even maybe over retreats or over years it takes to develop for some people it it, it's short, you know. It it, it may take <laughs> just a sitting, or I mean, those are really good kama people, but <laughs> I'm not one of those. <laughs> so uh, it it happens, and it's very, very, um, it's very sublime when this is um, happening in one's practice. It's the result of calm a calm and concentrated mind with a continuity of mindfulness on changing objects. This is the vipassana equanimity. It feels like a very balanced stillness inside and it feels really spacious, like anything can come into that space and the mind won't react to it. It just comes, it changes and it goes. And it at some point in practice, it just sees things going. It, it, it's, so, it's happening so quickly that you just see the passing away of everything. And sometimes people think, I'm not seeing the whole thing. Well, it's, it's the law to not see everything at that moment because you're just seeing how things pass away so quickly. So you're really seeing the ephemeral nature of that experience. And so that's a really important understanding to have experientially, to see the ephemeral nature, because one starts to realize that, oh, that's the nature of everything. You know, whatever the body is comprised of, whatever the mind is comprised of. And this is not secondary knowledge, this is direct knowledge. So there's resting the mind before it falls into extremes, and so there's no reactivity to anything at all in, that appears in this uh, space of the mind. This is called sankara upeka, upeka's equanimity. Sankara means all forms. Sometimes it's called six, six-limbed equanimity because it's to everything that appears in the body, to everything that appears in the mind five aspects of the body and the mind. So at this point it's said that one gets a glimpse of what the mind is like for the mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being. It's during this period of time that one sees, wow, you know, afterwards somebody would tell you, oh, that's what the mind of an arahant is like. And then it, it really occurs to one to aspire to that place because that place is so sublime, much more sublime than piti, than, than calm, than concentration. And so, th- that's a very important moment to know that. You know that, ah, oh, is that the mind? if that's the mind of an arahant, that's what faith will seek out. Faith seeks what's beneficial. It doesn't want it. It seeks it. Very different. So, at this point, um, when one sees that, it's really, really close to kind of that leap that it makes into beyond the relative plane of existence. So, this liberating wisdom that is formed before that time is really um, something very deep. It opens to the universal characteristics, which takes a very strong equanimity to know. The characteristics of how things are um, impermanent, the anicca characteristic, the um, the unsatisfactory characteristic, the dukkha lakana. It's called dukkha lakana to understand dukkha. I'll I'll fill those out a little more, and to understand the impersonal nature, the anatta lakana characteristic. So, during this period of like. Um, awareness being just dissolving, disappearing, the ending of all phenomena, there is a complete and deep restfulness in relationship to that experience. The mind is totally equanimous. It's not bothered by this understanding. So the deep understanding is happening directly because it's not about somebody telling you this. It's about actual direct experience of knowing that for oneself. And so that um, is the beginning of the three insights that transform one's life. And the first one is the deep realization of uh, anicca, or impermanence. Because of this constant change, there is that liberating wisdom into there is nothing inside or outside um, that can have any kind of lasting um, lastingness it's always uh, coming and going disappearing and this is painful on a relative level but when you get close to this ultimate level of reality the mind does not seek satisfaction nor does it get upset when there's when something comes up that a re- previously could be um, like a dissatisfying, not satisfying. It's not seeking satisfaction nor is it pushing away from anything. So it also realizes that because of this uh, coming and going all the time, this uh, nothing everlasting, there is no lasting satisfaction in anything. So there is this understanding of the unsatisfactoriness. This is one of the um, characteristics of all of life. They call this the lakana. It requires an immense amount of equanimity to open to that. And, but at that point, one has it because one open one wouldn't open to it unless one had it. So. You know, of course I want to say that there are, there is happiness and joy in life. There are beautiful qualities. There's peace that can happen, calmness, all of this. But it comes to an end. You know, it comes and goes, right? So that's what it means, that there's no lasting happiness. Everything comes to an end. So... There's also this realization that there are various component parts that make up this mind body continuum. And there's a recognizing that each one of those parts is seen to arise, to change, and pass away. And this is also known very directly. It's not known because, you know, you just agree with what the scriptures say. So one sees bodily experience kind of arise, pass away, change, you know, over and over and over again. Also, perception comes and goes. Feeling tones come and go. Intention formations come and go. Consciousness, um, the knowing factor itself isn't permanent. This is one of the last holdouts, because um, we, we want to make knowing permanent, but there is, a, there is a time when it is known to be impermanent. And this is when there is a, a completeness of one's liberating understanding. So with all of this, there is an understanding that there is no solid entity inside or outside, around or in any combination thereof of any of these five, what I just mentioned, the five aggregates. There is no solid entity that's kind of deeming things to happen. There are just these lawful ways that these come together and change and fall apart, moment to moment to moment. So one understands the impersonal nature of all of life. This what is called anatalakana. And the mind is completely at rest with this insight. Yet there's no fighting it. There is no way that it can be denied. There is a complete acceptance of it in that moment. And from that time on, you can't go back to realizing anything else. So this is more and more deepened as the, as the practice goes on. And so with this liberating wisdom, the mind and heart become purified of wrong view. And one one's mind starts turning to understanding this deep view of life and these three characteristics from a very powerful, um, liberating insight. So the, because the mind is so pure at that time, there's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, because of the purity of that moment, it is so close, it is the closest it can get to um to the unconditioned because of the purity of that moment the the absence of greed hatred and ignorance delusion that the possibility for it to leap into nibbana is very um prevalent at that time it may not because maybe there's more um there's a greater need to to understand those liberating insights. So it may stay in equanimity uh, for quite a while. And it can go backwards, too, into different different previous experiences. But that doesn't mean that it can go completely backwards and never experience equanimity again, because it knows the pathway there, and will find that path, because it knows that's the path to liberation. So when the, when the time is right, when all conditions are ripe, then from that moment, uh, when all conditions are ripe, then the mind leaps into the unconditioned. And that is beyond all form, beyond all words, beyond any description. So nothing I could say would actually be really that helpful to you. <laughs> and because you, I could say a word and then you could say, oh yeah, I've experienced that or think that you have. But really it's beyond and so um, it's better just to follow the path, you know, and then to know for yourself. And so <clears throat> what, is the, what are the conditions also for that to happen? It's the Eightfold Noble Path. And so those are the conditions for um, that to continue to go into the right condition, in, into the in, unconditioned. So the Buddha said in the Sutta Nipata when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation then one is free from the pain of longing. So when there is this no more longing, craving, clinging which is the cause of um, suffering which is the cause of dukkha then there can be the end of dukkha the cessation of dukkha. There can be this um, Nibbāna Is unconditioned. And so that is the third noble truth. So this is an exalted state of mind which bears the fruit of complete liberation. So that's the balance of our practice, you know, seeing the activating forces, the stabilizing forces, knowing when they're happening in yourself and knowing that this is the path. So with with absolutely no doubt, when you come to see those in yourself you'll have unshakable doubt in the Dhamma and you will know that you are the light. You know on a relative level there is a you, so you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. So the Buddha said that on his, in his parting words um, to his disciples before he died and so that's kind of we're not gonna die, I hope, soon, but those are our parting words to you. So make your your own practice your refuge and your own light. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Twenty minutes to walk or do what you need to do. And let's chant our last night of chanting, so maybe everybody or most everybody can show up. Yeah, we're, we're suffusing the divine abidings.